Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. I hope there'll be lots of episodes and that we'll have lots of guests. This first one is somewhat experimental because, well, it's our first one. We're broadcasting from our studio in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Now, people know Maryland, but... When they think of Maryland, they're often thinking crab cakes, Baltimore Orioles, Chesapeake Bay, but there's really a lot to this state. It's one of the most educated states in the country. About fifth of the people that live here have secondary degrees. There's the NIH, the FDA, Walter Reed, the super secret, Fort Meade, NSA, and of course there's Baltimore, a fascinating, funky, challenging, and amazing city all at the same time. Baltimore has two large transplant centers, Johns Hopkins University and University of Maryland. Both of these institutions have had transplant infectious disease programs for many years, and that has really allowed us to develop a community and colleagues to discuss difficult cases and to create a sense of camaraderie amongst the clinicians in town. So with that introduction, let's dive into talking about transplant infectious disease. We'll start with the case. This patient is a 69-year-old man with history of alcoholic cirrhosis, hepatocellular carcinoma, liver transplant nearly two years ago. His CMV status post-transplant was CMV donor positive, recipient negative, and he received prophylaxis for the first six months. About a year after transplant, however, he started developing CMV issues. He had CMV viremia, then he would have CMV viremia that was even higher. He would be controlled with valgancyclovir. Then he developed invasive GI CMV disease, and for about eight months or so, he was going back and forth with CMV issues and uh, with neutropenia related to the Valgan cyclovir. Ultimately, he was able to come off of the Valgan cyclovir, but several weeks later, he developed progressive shortness of breath. It started with him becoming more short of breath with walking. He also had a dry cough and then some clear nasal discharge. He said he would feel okay except for that walking thing. His symptoms got worse when walking even a couple of steps. He felt fine as long as he did not have to get up and move around, as he had told us. After about two weeks of this, he was admitted to the hospital to find out what was going on. At the time of his admission, his medications were mycophenolate, mofetil, 500 milligrams twice daily, prednisone, 10 milligrams daily, tacrolimus, 3 milligrams in the morning, 2 milligrams in the afternoon. His temperature was 36.4 Celsius, heart rate of 87, blood pressure of 153 over 75, respiratory rate of 22, oxygen saturation on 2 liters via nasal cannula was 94%. When he was walking around, it went down to 82%. He was taking breaths about every 8 to 10 words, and on exam, there was reduced breath sounds on the right upper lobe. Everything else was clear. So at this point, the differential diagnosis 
includes infectious and non-infectious causes. So in terms of non-infectious causes, could be volume overload or some sort of lung injury. But as transplant infectious disease doctors, we really want to focus on the infectious disease differential diagnosis. Possibilities are a community respiratory viral infection, a bacterial infection, because again, common things occur commonly, but also thinking about could this be the CMV popping up again, this time in the lungs? Could this be pneumocystis or some other fungal infection? I think a rational next step at this stage is to get some basic laboratory tests, comprehensive metabolic panel, complete blood count, and also to pursue imaging. And I think that we could play around by getting a plain chest x-ray, but really, I don't think that there's any finding on that plain chest x-ray that's not going to want me to get a CAT scan. So just go for the CAT scan right away, at least would be my approach. Save everybody time, and uh, you'll get the imaging test that really is going to help you make a differential diagnosis that allows you to home in as to what could be going on with the patient. So a CAT scan was done, and uh, it showed multifocal ground glass opacities in both lungs, greatest at the right upper lobe. Also not mentioned in the tests that I indicated earlier was a CMV viral load and a serum beta-glucan, and I think both of those are important in this situation as they can really help focus the diagnosis. So he did have both of those tests, and the CMV viral load was in the 80s range, and the serum beta-glucan test was greater than 500. So with this information now, I think we can focus the differential diagnosis a little bit more, also adding that he had a respiratory viral panel that was negative. Putting all that together, the top differential diagnosis now that comes into focus is pneumocystis or potentially another invasive fungal infection or a little bit less likely CMV pneumonitis. It would be somewhat unusual to have a low viral load in the serum and CMV pneumonitis, but not unheard of. We do see low viral loads and tissue invasive disease, particularly in GI disease from time to time. So he went ahead and had a bronchoscopy to try to nail down the diagnosis, and uh, the bronchoscopy showed that the BAL was positive for CMV by both shell vial culture and PCR, but more importantly, the BAL fluid also showed pneumocystis by direct fluorescent antibody, DFA. So the diagnosis was pneumocystis and possibly CMV. He was initially treated with cefepime and azithromycin and IV gancyclovir, but as the information came in, the most likely diagnosis was pneumocystis. The broad-spectrum antibiotics were discontinued. The IV gancyclovir was switched over to valgancyclovir so that the possible CMV disease in the lung is addressed, but that the real focus is on the pneumocystis. The approach to the case really brings several of the ways that we look at transplant infectious disease patients into focus. So some of the basic principles are, one is we really go pretty hard and pretty fast to try to establish the diagnosis. Uh, multiple laboratory tests done in an expeditious manner to try to really figure out what's going on, particularly in patients who 
are uh, having problems such as hypoxemia or are otherwise unstable. The next thing is that uh, the initial treatment is for common things and we start broad. Uh, in this particular case, the uh, possibility was that he had a bacterial pneumonia. We wouldn't want to be caught behind the eight ball with him having bacterial pneumonia and not having it treated. So initially we start with that, but then we have to be honest on the back end in terms of getting rid of those antibiotics because if he doesn't need them, then he's just picking up toxicity and potential for resistance with really no efficacy. So once we had the information that this was not likely to be a bacterial infection, then those antibiotics were discontinued. The other approach that's important is um, treating the uh, most likely cause, in this case the pneumocystis, and treating it with the best treatment that's available if possible, and that would be uh, trimethrim sulfamethoxazole or Bactrim. Uh, same thing, just uh, uh, different names for the same drug. And that was done. The other thing is that it could have been CMV, so he was treated uh, with valgancyclovir because patients that are transplant patients may not follow the uh, Occam's razor of one diagnosis explaining everything. They could have multiple different infections happening, the explanation being that they are immune suppressed uh, due to the uh, transplant process uh, and um, as such, can be at risk for multiple infections. Another important approach which was done in this patient is to modulate the immune system. So uh, mycophenolate is a drug that we often stop pretty quickly when somebody has an infection, uh, turn it right off, uh, levels go down pretty quickly, and uh, hopefully the, uh, the immune system is able to uh, reconstitute to a certain extent to be able to uh, get the uh, infection, the opportunistic infection, in this case the pneumocystis, under control. Uh, we often stop mycophenolate uh, when a patient has an acute infection, whether it's a respiratory viral infection or a urinary tract infection, and then gently put it back on as needed. And then the other aspect of the immune system is that uh, when you have infections such as pneumocystis where there is a known history of a um, uh, immune reaction when the fungus is treated, then sometimes steroids are needed. And the data regarding steroids in pneumocystis is, is, is very unclear. Um, clearly in HIV-infected patients with pneumocystis who are fairly sick when they are treated with an anti-pneumocystis drug, there is an immune reaction and their hypoxemia can get a lot worse, so steroids are indicated. Whether they're indicated in solid organ transplant patients and in uh, hematological malignancy patients and in general in non-HIV patients with pneumocystis is less clear. We tend to do it when we feel that the margin for error is narrow, such as in a patient uh, who has uh, pretty significant hypoxemia and therefore uh, may really crash if they get this uh, immune reaction. But uh, I, I just want to be clear that the data is, um, is, is not clear on who, if anybody, that is non-HIV should get steroids with pneumocystis. So a little bit about uh, pneumocystis. In terms of its history, there's been three arrows for um, uh, pneumocystis. The uh, uh, first one was in the 1940s and 50s, then the second era was uh, in the period where HIV really broke onto the scene, and then finally the 
third era is the one we're living in now. So the first one was uh, in the 40s and 50s, and it was really a disease of respiratory failure in premature infants and young children. And um, um, those uh, kids were becoming exposed to the pneumocystis fungus uh, for the first time in their life. Uh, their immune system was weakened either by uh, being uh, premature or being malnourished. Uh, oftentimes this would happen in orphanages and the mortality rate was quite high, something like 20 to 30 percent at times. Then people started noticing pneumocystis in immune compromised patients, uh, oftentimes patients that were getting high doses of steroids for uh, hematological malignancies or for other malignancies. And then as the steroids were being tapered off, all of a sudden the patients became symptomatic with uh, pneumocystis. Th this really was sort of smoldering along until uh, the HIV epidemic when the epidemiology of pneumocystis really exploded with uh, uh, patients who at that time had no other known explanation why they should have pneumocystis all of a sudden coming down with pneumocystis. Soon thereafter, uh, the uh, immune deficiency that they had due to HIV was uh, discovered and uh, pneumocystis and HIV really became intractably linked as an important uh, uh, opportunistic infection there. Things have shifted once again, and uh, one of the great uh, changes has been that patients with HIV have much better control of their immune system now than they did in the past, obviously, with the introduction and establishment of uh, antiretroviral therapy, immune reconstitution. Um, so patients just don't get pneumocystis like they used to, and those that are at risk for it uh, are getting prophylaxis. So in a recent study that was done in France, 59% of episodes of pneumocystis actually occurred in non-HIV patients with um, almost a third of those happening in solid organ transplant recipients. And in the U.S., over half of pneumocystis deaths are in non-HIV patients. So the epidemiology has really shifted, and pneumocystis is a real issue that transplant doctors are dealing with. Now a little bit about the fungus and the nomenclature. So when I started out, pneumocystis was called PCP, pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, but uh, uh, discoveries have led to a change of the name and the causative fungus is pneumocystis hirovecchi, hoping I'm pronouncing it right, the uh, spelling is J-R-O-V-E-C-I for the species name. Now, historically, pneumocystis species were classified as protozoa, and that's where we get some of the names trophic forms and cystic forms, but really they're, they're fungi. They're, they are fungi, but they don't have ergosterol as part of their cell membrane, and, uh, and, that, and that's a difference. So um, how do we treat uh, fungal infections? Some of our main drugs are uh, drugs that either bind to ergosterol, such as uh, amphotericin B, or inhibit its formation such as the azoles. But uh, pneumocystis does not have ergosterol in its uh, cell membrane, but it's still a fungus. Uh, that means that uh, our typical antifungal drugs aren't going to work 
against it and uh, thankfully the fungus can't import folic acid like um, like like we can so it really needs to make its own and uh, for that reason needs the dihydrofolate reductase and the dihydropteroate synthase DHFR and DHPS enzymes to uh, make its own folic acid and uh, thankfully trimethoprim and sulfamethoxazole TMP slash SMX also known as Bactrim can inhibit those enzymes and therefore it is a key anti-pneumocystis agent. Now a little bit back to the nomenclature there are multiple species within the genus pneumocystis but only pneumocystis hirovecchi is known to cause disease in humans. Now other animals can have their own species of pneumocystis for example pneumocystis carinii which uh, was the name previously used for the human version is actually known to cause infections in rats and uh, uh, there, again there, there are other uh, pneumocystis species that can affect a variety of different animals. Where is the fungus found? And it's really found in the lung of the organism to which it has a tropism. So pneumocystis urovecchii is found in human lungs and uh, doesn't really like to get out of the lung. It has a close relationship to the uh, respiratory epithelium, to the uh, uh, alveolar epithelium where it lives. So what is the uh, transmission? So a kid, uh, pretty young, usually by the age of four, will have their first infection. Where it came from, it probably came from somebody else who uh, uh, coughed or spoke and then the, uh, uh, the fungus was in the air between the two of them and then the, uh, the kid inhaled it. The, uh, the kid will then develop an infection in their lungs and ultimately clear it, but they can get another infection and another infection, multiple infections throughout their lives. Uh, transmission is higher probably as the organism burden increases, so if somebody is uh, immunosuppressed or even having pneumocystis, they probably have higher organism burden, so then when they talk or cough, it can go into the air around them and somebody else can inhale it. Uh, for that reason, if you have a patient who has active pneumocystis, it's probably a good idea to not put them in a room with another patient who is at risk for pneumocystis. But we don't typically do respiratory isolations for patients with active pneumocystis. Rather, we focus on trying to prevent infections in patients at risk. One of the reasons for that is that it's much more likely for somebody to come in contact with pneumocystis from an asymptomatic carrier who is having an infection, but it's asymptomatic, and then that person will transmit it to them. Who are the people that transmit the fungus? They're generally healthy, non-immune compromised people in the community, healthcare workers, or sometimes people that have a higher burden of organism because they are immune compromised. Now there are two main forms of this fungus, the trophozoite and the cyst. The trophozoite accounts for about 90% of the organisms in the alveolus. 
and um, the cyst form is the rest. The trophozoite multiplied by binary fission and uh, they have various different shapes and they're pretty small, two microns in diameter. They do have a cell membrane, but they have a very fragile cell wall. And again, they um, are about 90% or so of the organisms, so during active infection, they really fill up the alveolar wall. Now the cysts, which are also known as spores, are formed by conjugation of two opposing uh, mating trophozoites. So trophozoites have sex, and when there's two opposing forms, they can, um, uh, you know, shooby dooby doo, and uh, then the cysts form. And the cysts have a thick outer wall that contains beta glucans, and they're much bigger than the trophozoites. They're about 8 to 10 diameter in size, or sometimes larger. And they contain multiple nuclei, and uh, when those cysts mature and ultimately rupture, then they release new trophozoites. The cyst is hardy and it's the transmissible form. That's what's deposited in the air and that's what the other person who's going to become infected with pneumocystis inhales and uh, hence the cycle continues. Now under normal circumstances the organism kind of flies under the radar. person becomes infected, doesn't notice it, they may transmit the organism, they ultimately clear it, it, it's all subclinical, but in immunocompromised patients, the organism burden can increase, and then there can be an inflammatory response, and then at some point when there's enough of an inflammatory response and uh, enough of an abnormality in gas exchange to the lungs, patients become symptomatic. With the findings that we typically think of in pneumocystis, the shortness of breath, shortness of breath of exertion, hypoxemia, imaging tests that uh, show diffuse interstitial infiltrates, the classic finding of a ground glass pattern diffusely. So going back to this patient, why did they develop pneumocystis? And we know in solid organ transplant patients, the first six to 12 months after transplant are the highest risk, but this patient was clearly beyond that. Also, we know that treatment for rejection is associated with an increased risk for pneumocystis. So, for example, at uh, many centers, when a patient has rejection, then they get antithymocyte globulin or they get a high dose of steroids with a taper that follows it, they will go back on pneumocystis prophylaxis. But that didn't happen in this patient. What did happen is that they had some of the cell counts that are associated with uh, uh, increased risk for pneumocystis. The absolute neutrophil count of less than or 500, absolute lymphocyte count of less than or 500, and a CD4 T cell count of less than 200. All of those have been associated with pneumocystis. Our patient had an absolute lymphocyte count of uh, 350 to 500 range in the period of time before he developed pneumocystis. And uh, we're very well attuned to looking at absolute neutrophil count, but I really want to uh, uh, people listening to this to start thinking about looking at absolute lymphocyte counts as a risk for certain infections, pneumocystis being one of them. Also CMV infection is a known risk for pneumocystis and um, one of the things that you have to think about is 
if my patient is having a lot of problems with CMV, what is that telling me about their net state of immunosuppression and particularly their T cell function? So I'm not saying that every single patient that has CMV viremia should be put on pneumocystis prophylaxis, but I am saying that that is a consideration that uh, looking at the whole patient and saying, what is going on here? Now, another thing that's a risk factor for pneumocystis is exposure to somebody with a known P JP or pneumocystis infection while having these risk factors. And that's often hard to do because we don't know if a patient has pneumocystis or not. And um, uh, because of that, then we say, okay, if you have risk factors for pneumocystis, we're going to put you on prophylaxis during that period of time to try to prevent the problem from happening in the first place. So now diving into diagnosis, it is not possible to culture pneumocystis and continuous culture. Uh, what is possible to do is to observe it under the microscope if it's present in a high enough concentration. So uh, bronchovalvular lavage is often the way that we go, and then the characteristic cyst forms, trophozoite forms can be seen, particularly if there's an assistance of uh, direct fluorescent antibody or some other uh, technique that highlights the organisms. The other thing that is increasingly used is uh, molecular methods. So uh, polymerase chain reaction, PCR can detect pneumocystis, and uh, it is really a, a very high level of sensitivity uh, and specificity for the organism. Now, if you have a patient that has positive PCR for pneumocystis, does that mean that they have pneumocystis infection versus carriage? That's where you have to really put on your doctor hat and say, okay, what is going on with the patient? Does this test mean that they're having an active infection due to pneumocystis, or is this them having a different problem, heart failure, pneumonia due to a bacterial process, what have you, and the pneumocystis is there, but isn't really what's causing the problem. So uh, PCR can be helpful, but again, with those caveats. Um, and then beta-glucan, which was used, is a uh, test that uh, looks at the cell wall polysaccharide uh, beta-D-glucan that's present in many pathogenic fungi, including pneumocystis urovecchii. So having a positive beta-glucan does not tell you for a fact that your patient has pneumocystis. Um, it could be other fungi that are tripping the test positive, or it could be um, other causes that are non-infectious that are causing the test positive. However, if your pretest probability for pneumocystis is high and the beta-glucan is positive, that's quite helpful. Now in terms of the cutoff, so the cutoff for beta-glucan testing is generally 80 uh, that's what the manufacturer says. However, the various trials that have uh, studied beta-glucan in pneumocystis and personal experience seems to suggest that the beta-glucan is much, much higher in pneumocystis than, than the 80. Uh, typical values are going to be in the 400 range, greater than 500, uh, quite positive. So a uh, low positive beta-glucan in a patient that you're not really all that concerned about for pneumocystis needs to be taken into um, uh, consideration as maybe not indicative of pneumocystis. So an emerging area of finding out what the cutoff for beta-glucan for pneumocystis is, but uh, 
the, the main teaching point is that the levels are going to typically be quite high when beta-glucan testing is done and uh, is positive and the patient has pneumocystis. Now another test that is often talked about with pneumocystis is LDH, lactate dehydrogenase, and it tends to be greater than 300 in patients that have pneumocystis. It's not particularly specific because a lot of pulmonary processes and also other processes can cause elevated LDH, but uh, a level of 300 is something that is usually present. Now, one of the most important things in diagnosis of pneumocystis in transplant patients is to think about pneumocystis. If you have an HIV patient and they have diffuse interstitial infiltrates, it's almost like a no-brainer. Yes, pneumocystis is on differential diagnosis. But if you have a transplant patient with such findings, sometimes pneumocystis is not something that you think about, and you really should. And uh, the problem is that it's often not thought about and diagnosed uh, much later than it should have been. And that could be the reason why the mortality rates and the rate of going into the ICU and just doing poorly higher in non-HIV patients than HIV patients. So important to think about it, work toward diagnosis, and get them on therapy. Steroids and pneumocystis. And to paraphrase Hamlet, to steroid or not to steroid, that is the question. Whether to snobler in the lungs to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous immune response or to take arms against the sea of troubles with a prednisone taper. So as a general rule, immunosuppression should be reduced in patients with pneumocystis, and sometimes it is the steroids themselves that led to the pneumocystis. However, once pneumocystis develops, the immune system can really be a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's necessary to control the infection, but then it can overdo it, and in the tight quarters of the alveoli, an exuberant immune response can really impair gas exchange and then the patient can become more symptomatic. In HIV, the answer is pretty clear. If the patient is severely hypoxemic, steroids make a difference. The issue in non-HIV patients is less clear. Guidelines from the American Society of Transplantation uh, say if it's severe disease, hypoxemia with a PaO2 less than 70 on room air, then steroids really do make sense and ideally to start them within 72 hours of initiating antimicrobial therapy. The European guidelines, ECIL, which is European Conference of Infections and Leukemia, recommend against routine adjunctive steroids and say the decision should be made individually uh, for patients. If steroids are to be used the recommended dose is 40 to 60 milligrams of prednisone twice daily for five to seven days, followed by a seven to 14 day taper. I wanted to go over the medications real quick. So first line therapy, TMP-SMX. Second line therapy, clindamycin and primaquine. Third line therapy, IV pentamidine. Trimethrim sulfamethoxazole, TMP-SMX. You really should monitor renal function, electrolytes, CBC, liver function tests, and uh, oftentimes patients that are transplant patients on this drug can get hyperkalemia, so be on the lookout for that. Clindamycin and primaquine. Clindamycin, of course, can cause GI intolerance, C. difficile infection, and primaquine uh, can cause hemolysis with a G6PD deficiency and can cause methemoglobinemia. So 
G6PD level should be checked before starting it and monitoring CBC. Pentamidine, when given by IV, is a difficult drug to give. If I never ever have to give pentamidine again, I won't be sorry about that. Um, there's a lot of safety concerns and side effects happen in more than half of the patients that receive them. Uh, some of the more serious ones are hypoglycemia, pancreatitis, hyperglycemia, arrhythmias, hypotension, and um, kidney dysfunction. So difficult drug to give and um, hopefully your patient won't need pentamidine, but if they do, it is an option. So we've had some questions submitted to the podcast, and in the next few episodes, we'll try to answer them. So one question was about an issue that comes up all the time. You're on transplant infectious disease consult service. A call comes in from the surgeon. They have a prospective donor, and that donor had an active infection at the time that they died. And the question is, can that organ be used? And trying to determine which infections one should not accept an organ from and which infections are okay with some targeted therapy. So we'll try to talk about that and tease out some of the approaches. Another question we'll try to tackle is what to do about strongyloides. How do we identify patients at risk and prophylax them? We'll try to address that in an upcoming podcast. And another question was what to do about fever and elevated inflammatory markers, say CRP, in an otherwise stable solid organ transplant patient? Is it reason enough to start empirical antibiotics? That is a difficult question. When rotating on the transplant infectious disease service, it's really important to take a look at the patient and what is the margin for error. If the patient doesn't have a spleen, if the patient is heavily, heavily immunocompromised, if the patient knows their body incredibly well and says, ah yeah, this is the kind of fever I get when I have a blood transfusion and I just had one and nothing to worry about, doc, that means something else. So it's hard to give a blanket suggestion, but uh, I tend to have a very low threshold for empiric antibiotics in transplant patients with fever or any sign of infection, get the data as quickly as possible to rule in or rule out something, and then back off on the antibiotics uh, if uh, indicated. Again, it's, it's an uh, issue much more of the uh, art of medicine than the science of medicine, but uh, you really don't want to be caught behind the eight ball in transplant patients as uh, they have an infection that's galloping out of control on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, antimicrobial stewardship does not stop just because a patient has a diagnosis of having had a transplant. And that's it for this podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope to connect with you on Twitter, in person, or in future podcasts.